Thank you, Daniel. I've really been impressed with your preacher, and uh, it's impressive to come here today and see this place so alive and uh, hear the testimonies of lives being changed and what's going on here in this church community. But I'm most impressed with seeing so many young people. Now, I know that uh, you have to be a little bit nervous to have somebody as old as I am coming to speak and you wonder, can this guy remember anything? Can he relate to us? I heard about three guys who were friends for many years, and then they discovered that they celebrated the same birthday. They didn't even know it. They said, hey, we're all turning 50 on the same day. Let's uh, celebrate together. Let's go out to eat. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. I understand they've got some pretty waitresses there. So they went. 10 years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 60 on the same day, let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go back to that restaurant down by the river. They've got some good food down there, and so they went. <laughs> 10 years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 70 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They got a wheelchair ramp down there. <laughs> 10 years later, they're all turning 80, and they said, hey, we're all turning 80 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. I don't think we've ever been there before. <laughs> So you gotta be wondering if I can remember anything. I wanna talk with you today about being contagious ambassadors. The role of the church is to win people to Jesus Christ. That's why I get so excited about hearing about the people being transformed, the people being baptized. And we wanna talk today about the most effective way to do that. I'm gonna read a passage of scripture, about 10 or 11 verses, and I'm gonna ask that you listen carefully as I Read this section from 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we're in a right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all those that should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read verse 20 again. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. About 10 years ago, I took a trip to China 
with a handful of other Christian leaders. We didn't go on a mission trip. We went to meet with Chinese government officials urging them to ease up on the persecution of Christians. We didn't feel like our mission was very successful. But while we were there, we had dinner one night with the U.S. ambassador to China. It was a stately, formal, impressive dinner that took place at the U.S. embassy. And that's expected because an ambassador has a key role, especially in a country as vital to the U.S. interest as China. But I grew up in the country, and I didn't know much about ambassadors, so I started to reading about what is an ambassador so I wouldn't make a fool of myself. And I learned that an ambassador is a representative of his home country living in a foreign nation. He's not just there a few weeks. He's there to, to live among them. He's a diplomat who attends social functions with the intent of smoothing out relationships between nations. He doesn't hibernate in the embassy. He goes out and circulates among the people. And he's an emissary communicating the message that the State Department wants to convey. He can't change the message. He's got to communicate what the president wants him to say. And he's a guardian protecting the country's interest in the home nation. Now, as Christians, we are Christ ambassadors in a world that is not always favorable to Christianity. We're to represent Christ in a culture that is becoming kind of hostile to Jesus Christ. But we're to smooth out relationships so that people who are not familiar with Jesus may welcome him into their hearts. And we're to communicate the message that Christ wants us to convey. We can't alter the message to make it more palatable. The message that God wants us to convey is that God loves all people and he wants everybody to repent and be saved. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal to us. In the book of Titus, even the slaves were taught, now you do your best to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive so that your masters will respond to Christ. So regardless of your status, we need to see ourselves as representing Jesus Christ to the outside world. One unassuming woman was asked in a small group what she did for a living. And she said, I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a checkout girl at Kroger's. <laughs> and that's the way we ought to see ourselves. But, but the sad part is, so many Christians don't see themselves as, as ambassadors. They kind of see themselves as illegal aliens, trying to keep from being detected so people don't find out who you are. And rather than make Christ attractive, they're making him anonymous. But Jesus said, you're to be the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So in your minds, I want you to write down, or maybe even physically write down, four words from this passage that give us an idea of how we can be the most effective ambassadors for Christ that we can be. The first word is transparency. We need to be transparent about our message and our motive. In verse 11, Paul said, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it will be plain to your conscience. You know, there's something attractive about people who are transparent. If somebody's too secretive or they're too mysterious, we're suspicious of them. But we gravitate to people who are authentic. You know what we say about them? He's comfortable in his own skin. 
She's for real. What you see is what you get. Because, you know, she's just herself. And that's attractive. Now, the Apostle Paul was authentic. He was transparent. He wasn't trying to sneak up on people. He was very open about his mission. He said, I'm here to try to persuade men and women to come to Christ. In fact, in the previous chapter, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everybody's conscience in the sight of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Paul didn't bait and switch. He wasn't deceptive. He didn't water down the word to make it more palatable. He just delivered the message as an ambassador that God had given to him. And he said, I didn't come to you with clever words. I didn't try to impress you with my intellect, he said. I just set forth the truth as plainly as I could. And a good example of that is in Acts 26. The apostle Paul was on trial for his life in a place called Caesarea. And Governor Festus called in King Agrippa and his wife Bernice and all the movers and shakers were in an audience about like this. And they made Paul defend himself against the charge that he was an insurrectionist. And he said, I used to persecute Jesus, but I met Jesus on the Damascus Road and he struck me down. And he said, and look good right at King Agrippa in the audience. He said, does the king know about these things about Jesus? They were not done in a corner. And then he asked King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? And Agrippa was taken back and he said, Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, King Agrippa, I didn't mean to offend you. I'm not trying to impose my values on you. I, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. You know what Paul said? Yeah, I'm trying to persuade you to be a Christian. I wish that you and everybody in this audience were a Christian just like me, except for these chains. See, Paul said, what I am is plain to God. I'm here to try to persuade men. That's who I, who I represent. And I want to challenge you, both individually and as a church, be transparent about your message and your motive. Paul says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we're trying to persuade men. Your primary mission as a church is not benevolence. Though Jesus taught us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, that's good. Your primary mission is not social justice or racial equality or gender equity, though the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Your primary mission as a church is the same as that of Jesus. Seek and save the lost. Jesus said, you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, that's not easy to do. Because you see, if you focus on meeting social needs, Everybody praises you for that. But if you begin to focus on calling people to repent of sin and turn their heart over to Jesus, people feel uncomfortable with that. John Stott said the gospel is prickly at times because it calls people to repentance. But the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, what I received I passed on to you of first importance. First importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he says, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word preached to you. Otherwise, you would be believed in vain. So be transparent about who you are and what you're trying to accomplish in this world. Your goal is to go to heaven when you die and take as many people as you can with you. I'm going to point out 
two athletes who have recently really done a good job of being transparent about who they are. The first is a guy named Scott Scheffler. Who knows who Scott Scheffler is? A few of the men here. Who's Scott Scheffler? He's a golfer who just won the Masters two weeks ago. And after he won, he was asked, were you nervous? You always seem to be very calm. And he said, I was so nervous this morning that I cried. And that's being transparent about your own weaknesses. And then he said, my wife Meredith, however, is a real encouragement to me because she said to me, whether you win or lose, I'm still going to love you. And if you win or lose, Jesus is still going to love you. And Scott Scheffler said, all I'm trying to do is to glorify God. And that's a great testimony in front of a national audience. The other athlete who does it really well is a guy named Oscar Shibway. Anybody know who Oscar Shibway is? Oh, I see all kind of hands going up now. Uh, this is hard for me to admit. From, I'm from Louisville. I'm a Louisville fan. I don't hear any booing out there. I want to hear. That's, that's okay, Bob. We've all got weaknesses. Now, yeah. But Oscar Shibway is not just a great basketball player, player of the year. He is an outstanding Christian. And he's unashamed and bold about who he is. And he said, I'm not going to be bitter about the fact that my dad was killed when I was 13. I believe that God had a purpose. And he said, I just listened to what my dad, who was a Pentecostal preacher, said, and that is just obey the word of God. And he said, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to share the word of God. I'm trying to, to represent God. And I heard John Calipari, the coach, interviewed this past week. Uh, and he, I was asked about Oscar Shibway, and three times I heard him use the word authentic. He's authentic as a Christian. That's attractive. Can you imagine how many young men and women throughout Kentucky are more receptive to the gospel because Oscar Shibway is transparent? And uh, I, th I think we need to be authentic about who we are and not try to hide it. What I am is plain to God. Hope it's plain to your conscience, Paul. The second word is the word intensity. Be passionate in your effort to represent the truth. He says in verse 13, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. But Christ's love compels me. Now, you can't read the New Testament finding out Paul was passionate about evangelism. From the time he was converted on the Damascus Road, he was on fire. He said, Christ's love compels me, drives me. The message paraphrases that verse. If I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted over serious, I did it for you. For Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything we do. When you really capture what Christianity is all about, it becomes the most important motivation in your life. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 9, 3, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He was so blood earnest about evangelism, he said, I would give up my own salvation if I could just persuade people to become Christian. Governor Festus said of Paul, Paul, your much learning has driven you insane. And Paul said, no, I'm not insane, most, Festus, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Now, if you really become intense about Christianity, the world out there may accuse you of being out of your mind because our priorities are different than the world. The world focuses on things that are seen, money, power, popularity. 
We focus primarily on what is not seen. Issues of the heart and the Holy Spirit and relationships and the hope of heaven. And we believe differently than the world believes anymore. The Bible teaches that we're here by divine creation. We're not here by evolutionary accident. You're not roadkill, you're a child of God. We believe that life is sacred from conception. God weaves us together in the mother's womb. The Bible teaches that God made man and woman, just two genders. The Bible teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman and constitutes the basic building block of society, the family. The Bible teaches that it is the source of absolute truth. Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. The Bible teaches that man inherits the basic sin nature from Adam, and we, by nature, gravitate toward evil, regardless of how positive the environment may be. The Bible teaches that there is one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ, to have our sins washed away by his blood and the promise of eternal life through his resurrection. The Bible teaches there's a heaven and there's a hell and there's a hurry. Now, 50 years ago, those were common beliefs, but our culture has changed so much that if you believe those things today, the world's gonna say, you've lost your mind. You know what Joy Behar of The, of the View said about Vice President Mike Pence? Mike Pence said he talked to God and there were times that he felt God talked to him. And Joy Behar said, our Vice President is mentally ill. If you believe the basics of the Bible and you focus on the things that are not seen and you're intense about evangelism, the world may think you're out of your mind or you're guilty of hate speech. Somebody said, love sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Now, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to be controversial. So you know what we do about evangelism? We just back off. We hide our light under a bushel and we circulate in the world so that we don't have any controversy. There's a guy named Mont Smith who is a professor at Hope International University in uh, California, Fullerton, California. He did his doctorate at nearby Fuller Seminary on evangelism, and he did a survey of hundreds of people. He found some interesting things. He found that people, he asked, why did you become a Christian? And well over half of the people who became Christian did so because somebody invited them to come to church. Even in this age, we talk about missional churches and attractive churches. People come to Christ because somebody invites them to come to church. Very few come to Christ because somebody knocks on their door as a complete stranger and goes through evangelism explosion questions. Somebody invites them to come to church. They are a friend. They come to church. They kind of like it. They come back. They hear the gospel. Slowly, the Lord softens their heart, and then they respond, and they're baptized into Christ. But then he asked them this question. Who invited you to church? Just who invited you? And the survey showed about half of the people had been invited to church by somebody who was a Christian for less than a year. About 30% were invited by people who had been a Christian for two years or less. And the numbers continued to decline. Here's the amazing statistic. Less than 2% were invited to come to church by somebody who was a Christian for six years or more. In other words, the longer we're Christian, the less passionate we are about evangelism. 
Oh, we say, well, the new Christian has more contacts, the new Christian has more excitement, the new Christian hasn't been rebuffed like we are. But just the opposite should be true. The more we know about Christ, the more passionate we ought to be about evangelism. The Apostle Paul said, never lose your zeal. Always keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I taught a class at our church called What We Believe. And after a class entitled, What is Christianity All About? This college girl came up and she uh, said, I want to introduce you to my friend whom I brought with me tonight. I, I brought her because I want her to become a Christian the way I did a year ago. But she has some questions for you. So this girl said to me, uh, Asked me a question about evolution. I tried to answer that. Then she asked me a question about why there were so many different denominations. I tried to answer that. Then she asked me a question about why God permits so much suffering. I could tell she was asking questions not because she had intellectual doubts. She was asking questions because her heart was not ready yet. And she was pushing back. So I said to her, I'll tell you what, I'd like for you to read a book called A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. After you've read that book, then let's sit down and talk. She said, okay. I turned to the college girl who had brought her, and I'm telling you, tears were streaming down this girl's face. And she looked away and said, I'm sorry. I just, I just want her to become a Christian so bad I can taste it. And I was convicted. I couldn't remember the last time I was so concerned about somebody else's salvation that I wept for them. How about you? When is the last time you thought about a friend who doesn't know the Lord or somebody you go to school with, you work with, you're a ball game with? When is the last time you wept for somebody or prayed for somebody or even invited them to church? I want to challenge you to regain your passion for evangelism. You don't know who might be sitting here a year from now simply because you stepped out of your comfort zone and you just asked them, come to church with me. All right, the third word is the word perceptivity. Be perceptive about the spiritual potential in people. Paul said, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, the world out there evaluates your worth by your externals. If you're wealthy or you look good or you accomplish something, then you're worth something. Paul says the world takes pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Paul said, I once regarded Christ in that way. I wasn't very impressed with his academic credentials, but I don't look at him that way any longer. And if we're gonna be contagious ambassadors, it's important. We see people as the Lord sees them. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he didn't see people for who they were. He saw them for who they could become. Who would have ever guessed that the vacillating personality, Simon Peter, would become a rock-like leader in the church? Or Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church, would become the church's greatest missionary? Who would ever guessed that Nicodemus, uh, intellectual, would humble himself and be born again. Or Zacchaeus, a greedy tax collector, would give half his goods to the feed the poor. Or Mary Magdalene, possessed of seven demons, would be the first to see the resurrected Christ. Who'd ever guessed that the woman at the well who had been divorced five times, was living with a man she wasn't married to, would be the most effective evangelist in Sychar? 
Other people saw her as a decadent woman. Jesus saw her as an effective evangelist. How do you see the people spiritually that you associate with regularly? You put them in a box spiritually, they, they never respond. No use asking them. You categorize them by externals, foul mouth, drunken slob, wheeler dealer, homeless wino, liberal progressive, obnoxious UK fan. How do you categorize people? <laughs> Be perceptive about what God can do in and through people. If anyone, anyone's in Christ, he becomes a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. We got a guy in our church named Ken Evans. Ken Evans is about five foot three, but he has five sons. He's a businessman and a dedicated Christian. And he was looking for some material to help him teach his boys about the Bible. He says, I, as a spiritual leader of my home, I know I'm supposed to teach my sons about the Bible, but I can't find any material to help me do it. So he began to develop his own curriculum. And he developed a system whereby a dad can sit with his son, read scripture, and then ask questions, and they get into the Bible together. Well, it became very popular material to the point he calls it manhood journey. And he eventually quit his job, and he now heads up a parachurch organization. This material's gone all across the country, manhood journey. But about six months ago, he got a telephone call, call from a guy who said, my name is Ben Roethlisberger. I've been reading your material, and I'm thinking in my retirement of starting a camp and using your material because I want to reach young men for the gospel. And he thought, are you Ben Roethlisberger, the quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers? He said, well, yes, I am. He gulped. When he told me the story, I gulped because I grew up outside of Pittsburgh and Ben Roethlisberger is a six foot six. I'd like to see these two guys together. Six foot six uh, quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Terrible, terrible reputation. He's been accused twice of abusing women. He was suspended from the NFL for inappropriate conduct. And now he's wanting this material from Manhood Journey. And if you heard his testimony a couple of months ago when the Steelers got beat in the playoffs, he said, all I want to do in retirement is advance the kingdom of God. Ben Roethlisberger? You know what happened? Somebody was perceptive enough to invite Ben Roethlisberger to a small group Bible study or maybe to church or talk to him about the Lord. And when nobody else would, they did. And the result is a conversion to Christ and a testimony around the world. Those of you who work with kids, those of you who lead Bible studies, those of you who have influence because of your musical ability, your athletic ability, your intellectual prowess, see people the way God wants you to see them. That child of a single mother who comes to this church, that child may grow up to be the next Billy Graham that little girl of that couple that barely speak English may grow up to be the next Mother Teresa. So you've got to be perceptive and see the potential in people because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. All right, the final word is the word ministry. He says, we're to see our task as a minister of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Let's say that you have a couple friends, man and woman, and you discover your friends are deeply in debt. They're $100,000 in debt. And their car is about to be repossessed. They're about to be evicted from their home. And you're not a wealthy person. You, you can pray for them, but there's nothing you can do. But you have a wealthy friend who comes to you and says, I've heard about your friends. I'd like to help out. Here's a check written out to them for $200,000. I want you to take it to them and tell them $100,000 is to pay off all their debts. And another $100,000 is to give them a jump start in the next chapter of their life. How long would it take you to take that check to your friends? You couldn't wait to get there. You couldn't wait to tell them, hey, you've been reconciled to your debtor. You've got a jump start in the next chapter of your life. We have this ministry of reconciliation because that world out there is in debt by sin and they can't repay it. And Satan is eager to collect what is due him. But Jesus Christ came and paid the debt in full. And now he not only repays the debt, he imparts to us his righteousness. He imputes to us his righteousness. And we have that credited to our account. This says we have this ministry of reconciliation. Christ forgave our sin and he became sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God. And when you see your task as ministers of reconciliation, you understand we're not, we're not judges to condemn everybody. We're not high-pressure salesmen trying to twist people's arms. We're not angry at people. We've got this wonderful message that you can become a child of God and inherit God's riches. I have two sons. I've got one son who is a policeman and one son who's a preacher. We've got love and justice in our home. But I go down to visit. Uh, my son is a preacher in South Florida and God calls me down to visit him every January and February. You, you gotta go where the Lord leads you, you know? But I was down there a couple of years ago, and I discovered my son, Rusty, is deeply involved in the high school football program. I mean, he's not just a chaplain. They've appointed him as an assistant coach in charge of player development. He lifts weights with these kids. All the kids know his name. Five of the coaches come to his church. And I asked him, Rusty, how did you get so involved in the high school football program when you never played a day of football in your life? I said, pretty easy, Dad. How's that? He said, I just went to the coach and I asked him, how can we help you? Second time I asked him, he gave me a list of things that he wished volunteers would do because the coaches were doing all these things. It's kind of an impoverished area. And the hardest thing on the list was they needed somebody to launder the football uniforms every weekend. The assistant coaches and the coaches were doing it themselves on Saturday. And Rusty said, okay, we'll do that. So he said, so after the game, I go in, I collect all the uniforms, take them to my house, and have to fumigate the whole house. But he said, three or four of people from the church, couples from the church come and take them, and we divide them up, and we take them back on Monday clean. Was it a football game, like 5,000 people at this football game? He said, after the game, he said, come on, Dad, help me. So I go in the locker room after the game. Have you ever been in the high school football locker room after a game? It is a putrid smell, let me tell you. 
And we're picking up these sweaty, dirty, wet uniforms, sticking them in the sack. I'm a mega church preacher, and I'm standing there picking up these uniforms, lugging these 50-pound bags to the car. We come back for the second load, picking up these uniforms. Head coach walks by the door. He says, thank you, Pastor Rusty. See you in church Sunday. It's amazing the people you can influence if you wash feet, if you wash uniforms. Therefore, we are Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. That means that we're transparent about who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to persuade the people. It means we're passionate about there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's a hurry. And it means we're perceptive. Anyone's in Christ, they can become a new creature. Everybody's welcome to the foot of the cross. And it means we serve people. We're not out here to be served, but to serve. And when we do, I think the world out there will find Jesus is attractive and we can win many to the kingdom of God as his ambassadors. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this very impressive church. Thank you for Daniel and this staff and these people who are making a difference in this community. It must be really easy just to invite people to come to such an exciting place. May each of these people today see themselves as your representative in this world. And may they make the teaching about God our Savior attractive as your ambassador. I pray in Christ's name.